Right, when we quit last time, we were in the middle of this second lesson or session or however you want to call it, but I had divided it into two parts because it was originally done to, to last about two hours. So we have a little less than an hour of this. If we get done at a decent time, I'll start the next, next piece. But you should have a handout that's got the, the blanks already filled in. <clears throat> so the, the question that keeps coming around to me that, that drove me on with this was wanting to know what was life like in 1750 leading up to the revolution. Because 1750 is when things begin to start falling apart. And, and part of the question is why, if, if things were really good, why did they decide to revolt? Okay? So the question is how good is it? Because I mean, trying to think about what, will, what was life like in the 1750s, that's was beyond my comprehension without doing some looking. So that's where we're at here. Okay. So we have been talking about the formation of the various colonies, and we've come to the point here to talk about the relationship between England, France, and Spain. These were the world leaders. These, these folks controlled trade around the world, and they didn't agree with one another. So Spain in the Americas had Florida, Mexico, what we now call Texas and New Mexico and California, okay? Thank you. Are, did, were they all headed by kings? Yes. Yes. I mean, they didn't have kings here, but they claimed all of this territory. I mean, they, they, had, they had folks here, okay? Uh, they might not have had a government in the sense that we think about now, but they had a governmental structure, but, but it was controlled by the king and queen in Spain. Okay? They claimed all this land. And then the French claimed a chunk, but the Spain also had colonies in Haiti, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and in, they say Florida, but it was essentially just St. Augustine, where they had been since 1565. So they didn't just show up you know, at this stage. They've been here for a long time. They were in Mexico for a long time. They're in what we call California and Texas for a long time. I found this on the web. Oh, nobody cares, okay? <laughs> Somehow the watch thinks I ask questions, okay? So one of the key pieces is Spain was involved in slavery since at least 1502. So we often think about slavery as being sometime in the 1800s, but there were, there were some countries like Spain that this was a livelihood for them, okay? So Spain and England at times were allies and at times were enemies. So the, the latest issue coming into the period of time we're talking about was called the War of Jenkins' Ear, which happened between 1739 and 1748. And the story is that the Spanish boarded a British vessel, and in the, in the process, they cut the ear off of the captain, whose name was Jenkins, and the story is that he showed up at Parliament with this ear that shriveled up and said, this is, what, this is what they're doing to us, and out of that came war declared against Spain from England, okay? It didn't last very long, okay? But the big issue was over the rights to sell slaves to Spanish America. That was the big issue. Who, 
Who has the right to do this? Remember, Spain is Catholic, and at this point, Britain is Protestant, okay, kinda, okay. Then France, they're in what they call New France, which is Canada, and what we later call the Louisiana Territory. They've been there since 1735. The population estimate of New France, about 1750, was about 80,000. You could only go there if you were Catholic. Okay. They also were in Louisiana. So now the French and Indian War, we've talked about previously, and we'll do more depth later, ran from about 1756 to 1763. It's really hard to tell the exact start and the exact end because it took time to do all the, this stuff. Okay? But the big issue was a conflict over fur trade and the expansion into the Ohio Valley. And there are two major Indian groups. There, there were a number of tribes, but Indian groups. The Anglo-Anglo-ans went with the French and the Iroquois with the British, and they, they had those connections. Some of them was dated back in the late 1500s, and they stayed together in those connections up through the war. Okay? And, and it was agreements over who's going to give the, the tribal chiefs the best deal on, on furs and the best deal on protecting them for territory that they can, they can uh, trap in. Okay? So throughout all that, not only do you have battles between the French and the Americans and these tribes, but you've got individual tribes doing battles with one another over the rights to harvest furs in a particular area. I mean, we don't have these lines of demarcation that we commonly see on the map, but, but they knew where the, where, the, where the lines were. So England and France, now, they, they've been at war off and on for over 100 years at this point in time. I mean, sometimes they're allies and sometimes they fight with one another. The current conflict was called the Second Chromatic War, from about 1749 to 1754, we call that part of the French and Indian War. Other parts of the world called it the Seven Year War. So this is the British East India Company and its Indian allies, not, not Native American Indians, but Indians in India, okay? Battle with the French East Indian Company and its Indian allies, okay? In America? No. In, in India, so right. So we got these two countries that are fighting over here, over there. They're also fighting here. All right, but the, but the battle lines was over trade. But but when when you look at stuff in the history books, you'll see this war, the 1749 to 1754. Okay, right. So that's a battle that's going on between these two world powers. And it bled over here. All right? And part of the battle, not only for trade for goods, but it was trade dealing with slaves. So the slave trade is immense. And I want to talk about slave trade and indentured servants, because they have some similarities and they have differences 
when it comes to the Americas. Theoretically, the slave trading started in the Americas in 1619. A Dutch ship by the name of the White Lion showed up in Chesapeake Bay. It, it was battled and bruised. It had somewhere to either 19 or 20 African slaves they had taken off of a Spanish vessel called the San Juan Batista. Okay? They had done battle in the Caribbean. Okay? The Dutch ship won. And what they won out of that were the slaves that were on board of the, of the San Juan Batista that was headed somewhere. But the ship got beat up pretty bad. They don't have a lot of food to eat. And they got themselves into Chesapeake Bay. And they said, listen, we need some food. We need to get the, the vessel fixed. We want to trade you. And, and what do you got to trade? Well, we've got these slaves. All right. So they traded the African slaves for food and for repairs on the vessel. They became indentured servants. They were all freed after seven years. The slaves, the 19 or 20 African slaves, were traded to the colonies okay, for food and for repair for the vessel. They weren't slaves. They were taken. They were, they were, Gave them food and all, got the slaves. The slaves became indentured servants who got their freedom after seven years. So they didn't enslave them in the manner that we commonly think about. Now, that's the good news. Here's the bad news. This issue is the foundation for the 1619 project that says slave trade started in America in 1619, and therefore, all, every, all success that happened in all businesses in America since that period of time as a result of slavery. Okay? I mean, that's this woman's stand on that, okay? And has received multiple million dollars of our money to help promote that project. Okay? Yep. Yeah, and, and that the king and the, and the queen were in favor of that and involved in that. And it's like, yeah, okay, so, so what? So I, I got the quick thumb today, okay? So, so here's some stuff to think about with this slavery deal. Here, these are the slave ports that you've got all along Africa, okay? Now, this is as of about 1750. So these are the places where Africans were capturing other Africans and selling them to the British, to the Spanish, and to the French as slaves. Okay. Now, I mean, it's, a, it's man's inhumanity to man. Here, I mean, there's there's no there's no way that one can support this process in any way, shape, or form. Okay. So I'm not here to support. It. I'm just saying, here's what happened. Now. It's an unimaginable process here of bringing people over there. They're stacked up like cordwood on board a vessel. Okay? It's eight to 12 weeks of travel. Poor sanitation, essentially none. They're on rations about every two weeks. It, part of me says, I don't understand why you, if this was how you were making your money, you can have these people and you gotta go sell them and that's how you get paid. 
why would you not want to feed them and treat them so that they're in good shape by the time you get them somewhere where you can sell them? Okay? So, so here's, the, here's the deal, okay? Look at the numbers. We're talking about between about 1650 and 1860. We're talking about somewhere around 10 to 15 million. 10 to 15 million people gathered up and brought across the ocean. But look where they went. We've got five million thereabouts down here, about a half a million on this side, four and a half million into the West Indies, okay? couple of million into Central America, okay? Three million, three-tenths of a million, 300,000 up to, to, to Europe, and about a half a million into the colonies, okay? So if it was true somewhere between 10 and 15 million were enslaved, and a half a million came here, it's a relatively small percentage of the total. Doesn't make it right, but when you look at stuff like the 1619 Project, there's a tendency to, to come away going, oh, all of the slaves that were gathered up in Africa, all of them were brought to the colonies, okay? Which is not true, the majority went to the West Indies. And if you go to the Caribbean today, you'll find that the majority of the population in the Caribbean are black, okay? And that's not the folks who were there originally, that's the, that's the slave trade, okay? Yes. The cat, the cat owns this place, you understand? This is the cat's building. So as you can imagine, slaves don't have any rights, okay? Every, everything has to be approved by their, the master. They're often beaten, women were raped, okay? The, the working conditions were atrocious. Uh, I mean, I've not been to Africa, but you know, I, I get, you know, I don't understand what the climate was like there. I assumed it was hot and muggy, but evidently the, it wasn't the same as the situation in Virginia and Maryland because they had a really hard time surviving there. It's daylight to dark, okay? And the climate was difficult to adjust to. Now, that's the stuff that's in the literature. I wonder sometimes if it was the climate or the working hours on top of the climate. I mean, you, I mean you're working daylight to dark. You know, I don't care whether it's good climate or bad, it's gonna be hard, hard to make it. Oh, it could be, yeah. So th there was no census taken in the colonies until they were states in 1790. Everything before that's a guess. So there was an actual census taken in 1790, and these are the proportions of enslaved populations in the various counties and in the various parts of the, of the colonies. And you can see that they were concentrated in in some areas and very few in others, okay? So the U.S. population was 3.9 million in 1790. 
there were 697,681 slaves documented. Now, were there more that they missed? I mean, I've spent a lot of time doing a genealogy, looking at census stuff, and I can tell you there's always people that get missed. I mean, it's just, uh, I have, <clears throat> have relatives that just don't show up on the census, and I know they were there, okay? So they're on a farm somewhere on a road, okay? Or they're out, you know, they were on horseback or wagon somewhere, or they were out hunting, or, you know, who, who knows? Yes? Yes, yeah, they were, even though they were property, they were counted as part of the population. And later on, we get the, the three-fifths issue, okay? That, that doesn't have anything to do with numbers, okay? So that's 18% of the U.S. population. It's a fairly significant number, okay? So switched horses here to indentured servants. Indentured servants were mainly English. Okay? There were others, but the main part of the indentured servant group was English. Okay? They were recruited primarily from the seaport slums. These were poor people who wanted to get out of there, okay? or in some cases they wanted to get rid of them. Okay? They might have been uh, petty crooks. So we don't want them around, so we're going to gather them up, put them on board ship, and we send them over here. And the way you get to pay for your transportation is you become an indentured servant. Okay? So, I don't know why my thumb is so fast today. So the contracts were four to seven years for the most part. Okay? And then they became free because they had paid for the, for the cost. Now, they were not treated much better than the slaves in most cases. They, they couldn't make any decisions on their own. Uh, couldn't marry, couldn't travel, couldn't buy stuff, couldn't sell things without the master's approval. So it's not like 100%, you know, some people who have indentured servants treated them well, others treated them terribly. Okay? I mean, it's, it's just humans. Okay? They were often beaten. Okay? Women were, were raped. I mean, it was, you know, being an indentured servant was not your first choice for a livelihood. So we have these different groups we're looking at, and now we also have the people who were here, the Native Americans. And they were well established. They were fairly significant in numbers. Okay? They were here when first folks showed up. I mean, they didn't come from somewhere else. This is, a, this is a theoretical distribution of various tribes about 1783. I, I've found very little that has much documentation about what it looked like before that. You get guesses, okay? But the fact is you've got several tribes here scattered around, okay? Their numbers were not huge. There were quite a few, but numbers are not huge because this is, this is a hunter-gatherer society. So you're in an area until there is not enough left to eat, and so you move on. So they, they were typically on the move every few years, and it's also the same as we got out here in the Midwest, they had the same deal. Uh, the tribes that were most stable were here on the West Coast, okay? Because food was plentiful, okay? 
So when you're a hunter-gatherer society and you overhunt, then you've got to move on. And they were, were famous, especially in the Midwest, of overhunting area. Here along the East Coast, there were lots of food. Okay? Winters were harsh, but lots of food. So not as much battle between the tribes. So the colonies provided some opportunity for the Native Americans, okay? especially in trade. We talked about the, the problems here with, with the furs earlier. So fur trade was a big issue. Okay? They also had got tools available that they didn't have available to them before. And they had weapons that they didn't have before. Okay? Now, it didn't suddenly show up in 1750. Remember, we've got people being here since the 1500s. Downside, lots of, brought with us lots of disease. Gastroenteritis was the most common. Uh, I mean, we take a stream, almost everybody's downstream with somebody, okay? And if you use the stream to put your waste in and you wash your clothes in it, okay, and you clean the fish and the deer in it, and somebody downstream is using that same stream for water, okay, then you get things like gastroenteritis, okay? Which gastroenteritis kills because you just become dehydrated, okay? It's, it's, uh, if you can keep from being dehydrated, you'll probably survive it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, through the, in the Civil War, when you look at, at the results of various battles, the, the majority of people who died in most of the battles were a result of disease. There are a few, excep a few exceptions, okay? Gettysburg, a couple of others, but for the most part, more people died from disease than anything else, okay? Measles, the natives had, you know, no immunity to measles or smallpox or yellow fever. In some cases, that wiped out 90% of the population of a tribe, okay? Something's wrong with my thumb here. All right, 80 to 95% loss in some tribal areas. Some estimates, that's as much as 20 million lives lost from somewhere in the early 1600s up to about 1790, that period of time, okay? So you're looking a little over 100 years. There's still a big number of people. Because there was this competition to get furs to be able to trade, now become competition between the tribes for what land, what land is mine, okay? So this is the, this is the Massachusetts area, and you can see you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen tribes here. None of these are real large, okay? But they've been here a long time, and it's like, wait, wait a minute, you're trapping all the fur out of the river that I want to trap fur on, okay? So you get this internal battle. Oh, I, I didn't do any work in this area, but I did work with the tribes in Maine, and it was the same problem up there, okay? So this is a positive impact or a negative one, however you want to look at that. We provided technology they didn't have. Their, their trapping methods were pretty crude. We showed up with steel traps. So that improved the trapping capabilities, okay? 
but it also meant that it was easier to reduce the population and therefore need to move on to other, other land. So just to give you some relationship here of what did, what did they get for a hide and what could that money buy them, okay? Um, this is my best guess at looking at a lot of, lot of data about the kinds of, of money that was there. Now, I converted it to current dollars out of pre-British pounds, you know, before pound sterling. So lot, lots of fiddling here with numbers, but I think I'm somewhere close. At least the relationship, the relationships are good, okay? I don't know whether the dollar amount are absolute, but the relationships were, were good. So a raccoon skin, somewhere between 37 and a half and 40 cents. A full-grown bear for five bucks. Now that's a big deal. Five bucks, as you can see over here on the left-hand side, will buy you a lot, won't get you a rifle yet, but it gets you halfway there, okay? Mink, otter, beaver, okay? And they would sell, sell moccasins for 25 to 50 cents a pair. So the big deal over here is a rifle, okay? 12, 12, 13 bucks for a rifle, okay? But you could get a beaver trap for 13 cents, right? So if I could get a, sell a raccoon hide for 40 cents and I could get a beaver trap for 13 cents, you know, I got one raccoon hide, I got myself three or four traps, depending on how, how much negotiation I can do, okay? So the conflict now on the fur trading is between British, French, Spanish, um, and Americans, and it created conflict between tribes, right? So this trade issue becomes extremely important here, we've got all these different folks wanting the same area, and the big area is going to be the Ohio Valley. So out of this comes this, the various Indian uprisings that are documented, where there were fairly significant number of massacres. 1622 and 1637 were two major Indian uprisings. And then the last major one happened in 17... 1675 to 76, okay? And it was the last ditch effort of the Native Americans to stop the English from moving into the area, okay? And it, it, it didn't hold up, but it was, it was their last effort to do that, okay? Uh, it became obvious that they were not gonna be able to stop the expansion of the British into the area, area or the French, and therefore they decided we'll just join up with one side or the other here and get what we can, okay? We'll, we'll make a deal. That way we can get some materials that we need. We'll get weapons that we need, okay? And maybe we can get help in controlling what lands we can claim, okay? It's called the King Philip's War because the chief was called King Philip's. So this was a big deal, trying to get these tribes 
to, to agree with one another, and the Uruguay's, Uruguay Confederation was one of the major ones. You can see we've got one, two, three, four, five, six. Is it six? One, two, three, four, five, six, yeah. So there are six tribal entities that come together. They're all Uruguay related, okay? And they've, con they've formed the Uruguay Confederation or the, or the Six Nations, it's called, okay? Yep. Okay. Now, we get these nice maps with these lines that show their, you know, where their boundaries are. It's a, it's a guess where the boundaries are. Well, let's see. It depends on, depends on the animal, okay? I mean, the bear they would eat, but, but the, the furs were delivered as furs, as dried furs, okay? They, they were skinned and they, and they were, all, I won't say cured, but, the, but the, the meat was all scraped off of them, okay? They ate it. So the so a, a, a beaver hide a beaver hide stretches out round, okay. So they made hoops, okay, and they put holes in the hide and stretch it out, out round, okay, and and fleshed it off. They use it, you know, use a sharp knife and clean all the flesh off it and let it dry, okay. Well, not very, beaver is not not a, not a delicacy, okay. Uh, I I have tried that, okay. It's not something you'll go back for a second helping. So they did this just to sell to... Right. Now, did they eat the beaver? Probably. I mean, depend, you know, winter time and you don't have anything to eat, you're going to eat whatever is available. Bear is pretty good meat. Okay? It's very much pork-like. Right? Raccoon is not edible. Okay? Uh, otter is not edible. I mean... It, it's not that it's going to cause you to throw up to eat it, but it's not, you're not going to want a second helping. Okay? So the division of these tribes ended up between the French and the British, and that's, where we, that's the stuff that came together in the French and Indian War. Okay? So it stayed strong, these divisions, clear through the Revolution, and in some cases, well up into the 1800s. Now, besides all this other stuff going on, we've got this great awakening that's happening. Okay. And theoretically, the great awakening was from about 1729 to 1760, about 30 years. Okay. And Jonathan Edwards is identified as the individual who essentially started that. Now, we know that the Lord started that, but this is the, the guy Okay, that we put this on. This, this was a whole new concept dealing with your relationship with the Lord. This was a spiritual renewal based upon the, the, the thing we take for granted, being born again. Th those words had not been used prior to, to this period, time, time period. Okay? So it is this promotion of a personal relationship with Christ. That, 
from a church standpoint, that was that was new. That was not well accepted by by churches, but it was well accepted by people. And it made a dramatic departure from the quote-unquote church experience. Prior to this, you wanted to be saved. You went to the pastor, and the pastor could was the one that had the authority to do that. Okay. Oh. This process said no. That, that's individual. You. It's between you and your maker here, okay? So this created a revival that spread throughout New England. It did not bleed very far into the South. It was primarily in New England. And it caused the colonists to reach out for the, for the first time in a long time to the Native Americans and to the African Americans that had been slaves or indentured servants, okay? Prior to that time, it was almost impossible for these people to become members of a church. Okay? In fact, by 1750, it was still difficult for anybody to become a member of a church. You could attend. To be a member, you needed to have financial standing. Okay? And single women was impossible in most churches to become a member. Okay? You could attend. Okay? Native Americans, no, you couldn't come through the door. Okay? If you were African, no, you can't come through the door. Okay? So this, this was a huge change in the culture. So Jonathan Edwards paved the, the way for a guy that we all talk about, George Whitfield. Okay? It is said that he personally led 30,000 to Christ in less than 30 years. Now, now that's, a, that's an amazing statistic. Okay? And most of them was in these open-air uh, revivals that he did. Uh, he didn't have a church. Okay? Why do we do that? One of the things that's important is that key phrases that people had written down out of his sermons. I didn't, he didn't publish sermons. It was hard, it was expensive and difficult to get a sermon published in those days. But people would write down key phrases. And it turns out a lot of the key phrases that were in his sermons show up in the Declaration of Independence. Not so much in the preamble or the end of it, but in, in the complaints, in the 27 complaints, okay? Because he preached against a lot of those issues. So other individuals that are uh, keys in this period of time is William Tennant, John Wesley, Charles Wesley's brother, and, and Thomas Foxcart. Okay? If you look at the literature, these people show up as key individuals during the Great Awakening. Okay. They all held revivals. They all came to the same understanding that this relationship with Christ is a personal one. And that caused many of them difficulties with their church. The Awakening's biggest significance was the way it prepared America for its war of independence. In the decades before the war, revivalism taught people that they could be bold when confronting religious authorities and that when churches were as Wesleyan up to the believers' expectations, that 
people could break off and form new churches. Well, that's supposed to have some audio with it. So, the, so the, this is a comment that I took out of, a, of an, another website called The Great Awakening. Through the awakening, the colonists realized their religious power resided in their own hands. This is the point I was making earlier. Rather than the hands of the Church of England or any other religious authority. After a generation or two passed with this kind of mindset, I remember this went on for 60 years, okay? the colonists came to realize that political power did not reside in the hands of the English monarch. We're talking about the Great Awakening, but here we're attaching it to the political issue. Okay? But in their own will for self-governance, consider the wording in the Declaration of Independence, which we'll look at later. Okay? So, so it, it is thought by many that this was a significant piece of people deciding we've had enough of being under the control of a king. Through the awakening, the colonists had just waited. Okay. So this is my summary. By 1775, even though the colonists did not all share the same theological beliefs, they did share a common vision of freedom from British control. Thus, the Great Awakening brought about a climate that made American Revolution possible. Okay. There was a marked contrast between England and her colonies over religious, political, and economic social, social freedoms. Colonial America believed their freedoms came from biblical principles, whereas England viewed those freedoms as being granted by the king. Europe became a battleground during the 1700s between Catholic states and Protestants over religious values. The Great Awakening further established colonial belief in the biblical freedoms common to all men. Natural law. Okay. When, when we look at history books, almost every one that I looked at leaves out any relationship to the Great Awakening as being influential in in the revolution. They will mention to some degree the French and Indian War, but, but I contend that those two pieces okay, were significant in, in the impact of people going, we've had enough of under the control of a monarch. 